At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Amen. Uh, If we have not had the opportunity to meet, my name is Kirk McDonald. Uh, I have the great privilege of being one of the pastors here at the church. And this morning, I'm honored to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Uh, Several weeks ago, uh, we began our study in Luke, and we've just been going through uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so as we began uh, our study in Luke, right out of the gate, Luke begins to tell us uh, what he intends to do. Uh, If you would just go ahead and look over at Luke chapter 1, what he intends to do, he tells us there in verse 3, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account. This is what he is seeking to do, to compile, put together from eyewitnesses, an orderly account. Well, an orderly account of what? Well, he is putting together an orderly account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's putting together an orderly account of the movement of Christ through that town, expanding out through all of Jerusalem, expanding throughout all of the Roman Empire and throughout the entire world. And so he gives us the account of the person and work of Jesus Christ in his gospel account. We also know that Luke is a physician. He writes this account, this historical account, but then he also writes for us the book of Acts. So what Luke is doing is in the the gospel of Luke, he's giving us the person and work of Christ. Then he writes Acts. He's giving us the coming of the Spirit and the expansion of the church. Are you all with me? So Luke is the person and work of Christ. Then Acts then becomes the the coming of the Holy Spirit and the expansion of the church. He is seeking to, in his gospel account, to teach us and show us who Christ is. So when I say uh, Luke is telling us about the person and work of Jesus, he's showing us who Jesus is and what he did. That's that's what he's seeking to do. And so here's what I want you to do. Go ahead and get, you, you ought to know, you ought to have your Bibles out. Amen. We are We're in church, so go ahead and get your Bibles out. I want us to walk through chapter 1, through chapter 2, through chapter 3, and see who, who Luke is showing to us who this person is, who is Jesus, and what has he come to do, which will lead us right into our text, into chapter four. Here we go, Luke 1, 32 through 33. He says this, he will, speaking of Jesus, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the announcement from the angel Gabriel to Mary to where he's showing us who Jesus is. And so who is is Jesus being revealed to be by Gabriel? Well, he's the son of God, meaning he has equal authority and equal power as the father. And what kind of kingdom? Is it going to be a temporal kingdom that will pass away like every other kingdom? Oh, no, no. This verse just told us he's going to have a forever kingdom. So equal with the Father, and he has a forever kingdom. Moving to Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Can you find it? Luke chapter 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Three titles is given here in the city of David. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
He's revealing to us who this Jesus is. This is yet another angelic announcement. And we're told that he is the Savior, Christ the Lord. Savior, meaning the one who has come to save us sinners from the wrath of God. That, that's what a Savior is. But he's also Christ. So he's Savior. He's Christ, meaning he is the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. And he is also Lord, meaning he is the one that is to be obeyed. Right? What else? Let's move on to uh, Luke 2, 30 through 33. Yet another proclamation. This one is from that old godly saint Simeon there in the temple when Jesus is brought and presented in the temple. There's Simeon. What does Simeon have to say about Jesus? Well, Simeon reveals this to us. For my eyes have seen your salvation that have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. So we're talking about a Savior who is equal with God the Father, who has a forever kingdom, who is Christ the Lord, and he's not just the Savior of Israel. He's the Savior of all people everywhere, that anyone who would come to him, he would he would say that's what we're told about him and so we've heard from Gabriel we've heard from the other angel we've heard from Simeon now let's hear from God the father who who he says Jesus is look at Luke 3 can you find it Luke 3 verse 32 Luke 3 32 and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son with you I am well pleased the voice of God the Father from heaven declares his divine sonship and declares his divine admiration and love for his son. So, so to help us see who Jesus is, his person and his work, what Luke has done has recorded the voice of Gabriel, the voice of another angel, the voice of Simeon, and has recorded the voice of God the Father proclaiming to us who this Jesus is, which will bring us directly to chapter four, where we're starting at today, to where we are going to hear from Jesus himself who he says that he is, the one who comes and gives sight to the blind. Those who are captive, he's, he's the one that releases them. He, he's going to tell us who he is. And so today in our text, we will see what Jesus has to say about himself. His claim is that he is, in fact, the Savior. Now, here's what I want to see. Y'all still with me? Yeah. Th th this is an important part here. If we are going to see what Jesus says that he is, we have to understand the implications of who Jesus says that he is. We need to understand the proclamation. What are you saying about yourself, Jesus? Who, who are you telling us that you are? But then we have to take that the next step and understand then the implication. So we need to understand the proclamation. We need to understand the implication. But does that make sense? Here, jot this down if you're taking notes. When Jesus says that he is the Savior, it implies two things, at least two things, meaning there's an implication to the proclamation. So when Jesus says that he is the Savior, it implies two things. First, that you need a Savior. You need saving. When, he's, when Jesus stands and says, I'm the Savior of the world, that implies you need saving. I wonder if you believe that today. The second thing that it implies is this, that he is the only one to do it. <laughs> he says, I am the, there is no other savior. If you're going to be saved from the coming wrath of God, if you're going to be justified, if you're going to be sanctified, if you're going to be glorified, if you're going to be adopted into the family of God, there's only one way that that can happen, and that's through the blood of Christ. 
So by him saying that, that he is the Savior, it implies that you need saving. In addition, it implies that he is the only one that can do it. And now here's the key part. Both of those implications are a direct attack on our pride. <laughs> right? This, the doorway to accepting the gospel is admitting that you're a sinner. The, the doorway to, to walking into the family of God is to say, I, I'm, I'm blind. I'm, I'm broken, I'm poor, I, I'm oppressed. I, I, I have nothing to bring to the table. That's, that's how you accept the gospel by admitting that you have nothing. But again, that grates against our pride because we think, hey, I'm a pretty spiritual person. You know, I read my Bible sometimes. And, uh, you know, I've prayed before once or twice. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. Like, you know, Jesus would really like to have me on his team. <laughs> when, when the reality is we bring nothing to the table. And so admission to the gospel is going, walking through that door is admitting that you have nothing to bring at all, which again is a huge affront on our pride. And so why do people reject Jesus as their savior? Because they don't think that they need him. That's why they reject him as their savior. They, they think that, you know, I, I'm a pretty all right guy. They, they don't believe when people reject Christ, they don't believe that they have done anything which would merit execution. Because surely, surely the wages of sin cannot be death because, you know, no one's perfect, right? So they, they reject Christ because they don't believe that they need a Savior. As a matter of fact, many of us keep a list of people who we know are way worse. And it's those people who deserve execution, not me. Which is why, again, week by week, we try to remind you of the gospel because our temptation, even as Christians, is to slip back into that same thinking. So why don't people receive Christ? Why do people recoil from the idea that he is the only one who can save? Well, many think, what makes Jesus so special? I mean, there are plenty of spiritual guys that have said spiritual and helpful things. As a matter of fact, I have a few things that I might be able to say that are spiritual and helpful and add, and, and it might just really be a benefit or beneficial aid to someone else, which is why we often say here at this church and what I've already said, we bring nothing to the table. Jesus does it all. Here, to say it another way, jot this down. Jesus's proclamations have implications that assault our pride. So the proclamations of Christ have implications to them, and those implications are going to assault our pride. The question that we must ask ourselves this morning is this. Do we have the proper perspective of who God is? And in light of who God is, do we have the proper perspective of who we are? The proper perspective on God, he is high, he is holy, he is otherly, he is good, always just, always right. And who are we? Well, we are beggars looking for bread. We are sinners in need of a savior. That's who, that's who we are. Okay, to our outline this morning, church family, here's what we're gonna see. I know y'all love the outline. I'm gonna give it to you. Here we go. One, Jesus confronts our spiritual pride. Jesus, in his sermon in his hometown, as he preaches his sermon, it's going to confront our spiritual pride. Second, Jesus confronts our moral and our intellectual pride in verses 22 through 24. Thirdly, Jesus confronts the pride in our group identity. Somebody say, oh my. <laughs> in verses 25 through 30. He's going to confront 
the pride that we have in our group, the group that we identify with, he's going to confront that pride. He's going to confront that pride. Okay, first, Jesus confronts our spiritual pride in verses 14 through 21. I'm starting to read in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Last week, we saw Jesus 40 days of hunger in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. He's in the ring, toe-to-toe with Satan himself, being tempted by him, and, and he refutes and pushes back all of those temptations. And what we see here is that Jesus isn't limping back. Jesus isn't totally exhausted, ready to fall over after his battle with Satan. He's not barely hanging on after he gets done battling the temptations of the devil. It says in verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. He's not wore out. He's not tired after going toe-to-toe with Satan. He wins this victory, and he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report goes out from him. So we see this Spirit-filled Christ beginning his his ministry. We see in chapter 3, verse 22, that he is full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit. And in 4.1, he enjoys the power of the Spirit. And here in this verse, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Again, it's, it's just reminding us again and again and again that how did Jesus walk out his ministry? How did Jesus do what he did? How did Jesus perfectly obey the Father? He did it through the power of the Spirit. Verse 15, it says this, and he taught and he taught can i just stop right there for a minute jesus ministry is a preaching focused ministry let me say that again jesus's ministry is a preaching focused ministry we focus on the cross and the resurrection as we should it is the very center of our faith But if you're looking at what Jesus did, what Jesus accomplished, he accomplishes this powerful preaching ministry. Jesus' main ministry focus is preaching. He is not setting out on a healing ministry. Does Jesus do healings? Absolutely. But oftentimes, go back and read it. Go back and read it. Oftentimes, Jesus is healing people on the way to do what? To go preach, to go proclaim the word, you, you, you remember the, the woman with the issue of blood and all that? She, he's on the way to preach and she gets healed. Uh, Jairus' daughter, I mean, I could go on and on about the, all of these miracles that Jesus performs. He's on the way to proclaim the word, to preach the word that God has given him. He is a proclaiming, a preaching savior. This is his primary uh, way. So, so I'm, I'm going down a rabbit trail here, church family. Can I do that? I know, so if I know it's a rabbit trail, it's not as bad. All preachers do it, but it it says it right here in my notes. It says rabbit trail. So I I wanna give you a word. I wanna give you a word on preaching uh, because this is not the main point of the sermon whatsoever. But I I find what we see here in this text is is a model or a picture of preaching. And I love preaching. And so here it is. What is the difference between a lecture and Bible preaching? Or another way to ask it, what makes a sermon a sermon? You ever thought about that? I think about it all the time. We find it right here in this text. And here it is, if you're taking notes. Preaching is spirit-filled, scripture-based, and Christ-exalting. Preaching is spirit-filled, 
scripture-based and Christ-exalting. Let me just prove it to you from this whole uh, little section of text. It's spirit-filled. It just said in verse 14 that he's coming in the power of the Spirit. And what does he do in the power of the Spirit? He preaches. So preaching is spirit-filled. Or what about scripture-based? We're going to see in just a minute. The attendant from the synagogue walks over, and what does he hand him? The scroll. He hands him a scroll. Jesus could have said, I don't need that. I'm Jesus. But he doesn't say that. He takes the scroll. He reads Isaiah and exegetes the text. He tells him what the text says. And what does the text say? The text says that, that this Messiah is coming and he's gonna, he's gonna receive sight to the blind. The captives are gonna be set free. And he says, all of that is about who? He says, it's about me. So he exalts himself. It's Christ exalting. We see all three of these components of what an actual sermon is right here in this text. So preaching, preaching is spirit-filled, scripture-based, and Christ exalting. And so church family, every believer everywhere needs to sit under Bible preaching to nourish their souls. If it is not spirit-filled, if it is not scripture-based, if it's not Christ exalting, it's not preaching. It's not preaching at all. Okay, I gotta move. Verse 16. <clears throat> And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, if I had time for another rabbit trail, church family, as was his custom, meaning Jesus made it a regular part of his life to attend church with, with his family, with his people. He's regular, just, he doesn't think, oh man, am I gonna go to the synagogue tomorrow? He, he knows that he is. It's a regular part. I'm on my rabbit trail. I'm back, I'm back. Here we go. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So having a person, having a guest preacher in a synagogue was a regular thing. Um, they, they didn't really have in, in the synagogues in those days like one main guy that did all the teaching. Uh, the teaching was spread out amongst the people and especially like in this case to where you have uh, Jesus who has been out and about. So um, it, verses 14 and 15 kind of show us a transition time in Jesus' life. Some time has passed because he's out of the wilderness, but now he's got this reputation. Well, that's because he's been going around teaching and preaching. Luke jumps over that and wants to get us straight to this scene here in his hometown. So he's been out preaching. He's got this reputation. Supposedly, he's been healing people and preaching in the synagogues. So as Jesus comes back to his hometown, of course, they want him to deliver the sermon, right? The, the, the sign outside or maybe on the church bulletin, it might have said something like, uh, you know, Nazareth native returns to give sermon at 10 a.m., right? That's, that's the the setting. So remember, this was Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. It was a small town, uh, maybe 400 to 500 people. Uh, if you remember Nathaniel, when, when he was told that the Savior was coming from Nazareth, remember what he said? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, so this is a small town. It's a backwater town. Those people knew him and he knew them. He had gone to school with their children. They had celebrated holidays and religious feasts together. He likely had aunts and uncles there. They had seen him in his father's workshop. Uh, so he has, uh, he has this kind of background there in this town, but he's got this reputation that's coming from out there as this powerful preacher and miracle worker. So he's the hometown boy coming back to preach in his synagogue. Look at verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Can, can you see it? Can you see the synagogue? Can you see the people gathered around? 
They're, they're sitting in, in front of the synagogue. They're, they were kind of shaped like this a bit with, with the stage up front. And there, there would have been a chest here. And inside that chest is where they would hold the scrolls. And the, and the leader of the synagogue or the attendant would come down and he would pull the scroll out and he would hand it to the person who was going to be presenting the message that day. And, and much like we do here, we all stood and we read the word. And then whoever was giving the sermon would then uh, exegete that text or, or explain that text. And so there's Jesus in his hometown, folks that know him, and he's given the scroll. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. I, I almost imagine in the mind of Jesus as they hand him the, he, he goes, Isaiah, okay, I, I, got, I got a sermon for y'all today, boys, right? He, 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 he's given this scroll, but he finds the place where this is written, verses 18 and 19. I'm going to try not to lose my mind because this is so rich and incredible. Here's what it says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's handed the scroll and he unrolls it and he goes down and down and he finds Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, and he, he reads that. Jesus begins th this sermon in his hometown. He begins to proclaim good news. This is how he starts his sermon, which, which should be good news to us, church family, because this sermon is not comprised with a list of things that you need to do to make yourself right with God. This is a proclamation of what the Messiah does. This is a proclamation of what he does, not what you must do to justify yourself before a holy God. Will he give us moral imperatives? He certainly will. Are there moral imperatives in Christianity? There absolutely is. But here he's beginning with grace. He's beginning with what God is going to accomplish. And what will he accomplish? Well, he is going to give good news to the poor. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus' ministry then is going around finding poor people and giving them stacks of cash? Is that what Jesus does? Well, no, that's not what he does. We, we have the record of his ministry. There is no record of Jesus going and finding poor people and giving them stacks of cash. So what can this mean then if he's giving good news to the poor? If you're a poor person and somebody gives you a stack of cash, isn't that some kind of good news? The good news that Jesus here is proclaiming to the poor is those who are not financially poor, but listen, those who are poor in spirit, those who realize that they have a sin debt to God that they cannot pay. They realize the depth of their debt they cannot get themselves out of. And even if they could pay back their debt, that would simply only bring their account to zero. And once your account is at zero, then you need to achieve perfection after your account is back to zero. Essentially, your bank account needs to be in the, the bajillions, not just up to zero. And so he's proclaiming this good news that his life, death, burial, and resurrection not only brings our account to zero, but it gives us the credit that we need with God. It's good news to the poor, those who are poor in spirit. Not only that, he, he proclaims liberty to the captives. Again, does Jesus free anyone from prison in his earthly ministry? Think about it. Now, later on, some disciples get miraculously freed, don't they? They, they, they get set free from prison. But in Jesus' earthly ministry, he never releases anyone from prison. So what can this mean? Liberty 
to the captives. Well, again, he is proclaiming liberty to those who are slaves to their sin. There is freedom from sin. There is freedom from addiction in Christ. There is freedom from destructive patterns of living in Christ. There is freedom from destructive relationships that you feel trapped in in Christ. This is liberty to the captives. Are you trapped today? Are you trapped by sin? Are you trapped by addiction? Are you trapped by websites that you can't stop going to? There's liberty in Christ. This is what Jesus is proclaiming. So he's proclaiming good news to the poor. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives. He's proclaiming sight to the blind. Oh, you, you, oh it's to say, Pastor Kirk, we got you there. He didn't give money to the poor. He didn't set anybody free. But he did, he did heal blind people. He did return their sight. And you are exactly correct as a picture of what he is doing to their spiritual eyes. So he does literally give blind people sight, but he's showing the world what's actually happening in our own souls, that we are spiritually blind and we need to receive sight. And the only way that we can receive sight is if he does it in us. It is not something that we can produce ourselves. And then lastly, he's proclaiming liberty to the oppressed. Again, in this picture here, who is being oppressed in, in this current context? You, you can imagine those, those Jewish ears in the, in the synagogue perking up a little bit. That liberty to the oppressed. We're being oppressed. We're being oppressed by the Romans who have come in and, and, and have occupied our territory. Is this Messiah that's going to free us from Roman tyrannical reign? Does he do that? Well, no, he doesn't do that at all, but what he is proclaiming, this liberty to the oppressed, is those who are spiritually oppressed. The oppression that comes from our flesh and the world and the devil, he comes to, to set those people free. He comes to relieve the oppression for those people. So again, what is so amazing about this is that God does not send his good news to the elite. God does not send his good news only to the wealthy. God does not send his good news to only to the privileged. God does not send his good news to the celebrities, those who are in power. God does not send his good news to the people that have it all together. So collectively this morning as a congregation, we can all take a big deep breath and let it out because no one here has to pretend that we have it all together. Because Jesus comes to save those and comes to proclaim good news to those who do not have it together. This message is for those people who say, I don't have it together. I am spiritually blind. I am spiritually captive. I am spiritually oppressed. I need your help, Jesus. That's who the gospel's for. That's who this proclamation is going out to. We must acknowledge who we are. If you're taking notes. In order to receive the message of Jesus, we must acknowledge who he is and who we are. He is the Savior, and we are the poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. It's interesting here, what we'll see next is he gives the scroll back to the attendant, and then he's going to preach the sermon. So he's just read Isaiah uh, 61, 1 through 2. So again, picture in your mind the synagogue. He's read that section of text, captive set free, blind receive sight. Look at verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. <laughs> I was thinking about this this week. Um, so their custom then was to stand, read the scroll. So the stand, read the scroll. And then the scroll would be rolled up. Remember I told you there's a chest over here. They would put it back in the chest that hold the scrolls. And then the preacher would sit. He would sit down to deliver the sermon. Can you all imagine me sitting down delivering a sermon? <laughs> 
I, 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 I wouldn't know what, like, what do I do with my arms? I, I could not figure that situation out. I got too much nervous energy up here to be sitting down. It would not work for me, but he's Jesus. He, he did just fine. Here we go. He sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, verse 21, and he began to say to them, today, this is the sermon, okay? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. <laughs> That's the sermon. I, I wish I had time to take us back to Luke 24. I don't. At the end of this very book, Jesus in his resurrected form actually takes the disciples through the whole Bible, all the, 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 old, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and he shows them how all of the scripture is fulfilled in himself. Here he's saying today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, um, I don't think that's all he's, I don't think that's the whole sermon. And the reason I don't think that's the whole sermon is because you'll notice in 21, it begins, and he began to say to them. So this is the condensed short, the one, his one main point, his one bullet point that he's gonna expound upon, his one main bullet point, his big idea of the sermon is today the scripture is fulfilled in your, in your hearing. So he, he preaches um, a, longer than just this sentence, but he explains to them, this is being fulfilled in your hearing, meaning I'm the one that this is, is talking about. So in his sermon, he is clearly confronting these people, these very religious Jewish people's spiritual pride. Do you see that? He's confronting it. He's confronting it. He's confronting their spiritual pride. They are the chosen people of God. They're the recipients of the covenants and the promises. These people follow the law. They're not the blind ones. They're not, you know, spiritually oppressed. Right? These are very religious people, and Jesus here is explaining to them that they are poor, that they're captives, that they're blind, and that they're oppressed. It's very spiritually offensive what he is saying to them. Now, how will they respond? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Point number two in our outline is this. Jesus confronts our moral and our intellectual pride. Jesus confronts our moral and intellectual pride in verses 22 through 24. So he has confronted their spiritual pride by telling them that they're poor and blind, now he'll confront their moral and their intellectual pride. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Okay, make no mistake. Jesus could preach, okay? <laughs> Jesus, uh, he, he knew how to bring the word, okay? Like people weren't just coming out to him in droves because he had like weak sauce game in the pulpit. That, that was not a... There was no weak sauce in the, I mean, he, he was bringing the word. He, he could preach. So he, he, his sermons were powerful. His sermons were interesting. His sermons were convicting. His sermons were organized and persuasive. He is a great preacher. But the question is, will they receive the message? Will they receive it? And, that, and that's the question for, for any pastor, right? I, listen, I preach some bad sermons, okay? Y'all have sat through plenty of them, I'm sure. But even when I feel like I've preached a good one, the, the question is, will, will the people receive it? Will the people receive it? Look at what the question that they asked. So verse 22, and they spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. That's all real good. But then the question comes. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Okay, two ways you can think about this question. Is this a celebratory question? Like, it's not this, this is, hey guys, this is Joseph's son. He's one of us. The Messiah is gonna come from Nazareth. This is exciting. It's not this Joseph's son. 
Hooray! No, it's not like that at all. (laughs) This is not a celebratory question. This is a derogatory question. Now, we can know that for sure because in about two minutes, they're going to try to throw him off a cliff. That's how we can know that this is not a celebratory question. This is a derogatory question. So behind this question, there are many other questions. By asking this question, they're also asking, who does he think he is? Or better yet, we know who he is. He's nothing special. He can't be better than us, is he? Is he more holy? Is he more? Is he morally superior to us that he thinks that he can be the Messiah? He goes around, he preaches a few sermons, then he shows up here back in town thinking he's all high and mighty. L- listen, he can't know more than we do. As a matter of fact, we all came to this very same synagogue together. We all read from those very same scrolls. We all were taught by the same Bible teacher. He can't be morally superior or intellectually superior to us, can he? That's all behind that question, is not this Joseph's son. Now, Jesus knows the pride that is in the hearts of these men and women, and so he knows what they're thinking, and so he responds this way. Look at verse 23 and 24. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Essentially, by saying, Physician, heal yourself. And what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in his hometown. They're saying, Prove it. If you're saying you're the guy in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, prove it. Prove it to, show us a miracle. So, because they asked him to do what he did in Capernaum. Well, what did he do in Capernaum? Well, the other gospel accounts inform us of what he did in Capernaum. Namely, he not only taught in the synagogues, but he also healed the sick. He, you know, did a whole bunch of miracles. And so they're saying, we, did, did, did you see, what we have heard you did at Capernaum do here? They're saying it's rumors. We, we've only heard it. We, we don't believe it. You need to prove that you can really do all of these miracles, and you need to do it here in front of our eyes. But truth be told, church family, miraculous signs do not produce faith. Miraculous signs do not produce faith. They, they, they simply don't. Case in point, all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is healing, doing miraculous things, and there's tons of people that don't believe him. There, there are people that saw the resurrected Christ and didn't believe it. So miraculous signs do not produce faith. It is the grace of God coming and moving in our life that produces faith. We all know that. So he confronts their spiritual pride. He confronts their moral and intellectual pride. Thirdly, he confronts the pride in their group identity. What he says next is so infuriating to them that they're literally ready to kill him. Talk about a killer sermon. This, this is it. They literally want to kill him for what he says. Listen, because he attacks their group identity, they have identified themselves with a particular group. And what Jesus will show is that when someone rejects the blessing of God, God will bless someone else. He's going to show them from the Old Testament text that God's intention is not just to pour out his blessing on one nation, the Jewish nation, but God's intent and his intent throughout all of scripture is to pour out his blessing on the nations. That is all peoples, all groups, all colors, all tribes, all tongues. And that has been his intent. He's he's gonna show that to him. And it's going to infuriate them because they believe our identity group is the only one that God really loves and blesses. Watch him do it. 
But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in where? Where were the widows? Israel. In the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah went to how many of the Israelite widows? How many? None of them. But to where? Zarephath and the land of Sidon? to a woman who was a widow. So uh, Jesus is bringing up uh, 1 Kings 17 and 18 where the starving widow and her son, they, they receive the prophet. They, they, in faith, feed him and, and he, in faith, feeds them and saves them. And they are not from the Israel nation. They're not Jewish in their descent. These are Gentile pagans that God is blessing. <laughs> not their identity group. If that was not enough, Jesus gives him one more. Verse 27. And there were many lepers. Where were the lepers? In Israel, in the time of the prophet Elisha. And how many of them? None of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian, an evil, pagan, Gentile king, is blessed and healed of leprosy. You guys remember that story, don't you? He's got to go and dip in the river and he comes up and he, no more leprosy. He was an evil, pagan, Gentile king that receives blessing, salvific blessing from God when the people of Israel did not. How offensive, Jesus. This is confronting their group identity. They, they are, again, God's chosen people, the people of the covenant, the people who've received the law, the people who've received the circumcision. We are God's chosen people above all the nations. We are the ones that receive the blessings and the, and the love and the mercy of God. He doesn't love those pagan people. He loves us. Apparently, these people had a real national pride issue. Their group identity was nationalistic. They believed by virtue of being Abraham's descendants that they had the right, they had the right to God's love. But do you remember remember John the Baptizer's sermon? Luke 3, verse 8, John the Baptizer says this to them, bearing fruits and keeping repentance, and do not say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, right? So this is a reoccurring problem with these very people. Jesus wants them to understand that salvation is not an exclusive gift to the Jewish people, which is their group identity. God's plan has always been a multicultural, multi-ethnic religion. I love this quote by John Piper. Here it is. It'll come up on the screen. John Piper says this, Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism. <laughs> Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism. All throughout the Old Testament, it's all about the Jewish people. It's all about this one nation. But when Jesus shows up, he kicks open the door to all nations, to all people. I imagine there's probably not anyone of Jewish descent in this room right now, church family. And so if you're here this morning and you've received the gospel, it's because Jesus ended the ethnocentrism of the Jewish religion. He kicks the door open to all people everywhere. Jesus is saying, that with his coming, a radically new way of defining the people of God is here, namely faith in him. That's what Pastor John Piper has to say, meaning he elects and saves Gentiles. That's how we got here. As a matter of fact, don't you remember Abraham? When he was called, he was a Gentile, the father of the faith. So that was their group identity, uh, church family. I, I wonder what's yours how many of us are deeply entrenched in our own group identity? We, we all identify with some group or another. We all do. May, may, maybe it's gender, 
race, sexual orientation, political party, uh-oh, age, age, stage of life, hobbies, economic status, nationality, geographic location, the list goes on and on. Aren't we in a world that declares I identify this way or I identify this way, I identify with this group and we take it on as our own personal identity to connect and identify with that particular group that does that particular thing in that particular way and these people are all like me and we all think alike and we have their, our own little group and, and we are just a blessing to God himself. But church family, many of us identify with a particular group to the point that we deify that group. If you're taking notes. When you deify your identity group, you will demonize the other groups. Don't we see this happening in our country? Don't we see this happening all over the world? We, we identify, again, political party, age, race, gender, sexual orientation, whatever, whatever it is. We identify, th this is who I'm a part of this group. And we then deify that group because this group is like me. And of course, we have all the right ideas. We know how to get things done. We, I, and, and then all the other groups, they're, I mean, they're ridiculous. They have no idea what they're, they're just, you know, bumbling around. You know, my group is their group. Uh, you know, th this is what Jesus is. So look, we live, we all live in some type of identity group, which is fine. As long as we're not deifying that particular identity group and ultimately realizing that below, up underneath, <laughs> Is, is our earthly identities and above that is our heavenly identities because in the earth, there's tons of different group identities, earthly speaking. Heavenly speaking, there are two group identities. Y'all with me? One is in Adam and separated from God and the other group identity is in Christ and adopted into the family of God. So no matter what political group you identify with, what socioeconomic group you fine. Ultimately, there's two groups, in Christ and not in Christ. So, verse 28, I'm almost done. When they heard these things, and all the synagogues were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill that their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. Maybe he showed them the miracle they were asking for after all, but they didn't, they didn't receive it. They had had enough. They felt very insulted spiritually. They felt very insulted morally. They felt very insulted intellectually. And the final straw was he insulted their identity group, which was their national identity. But the truth is he had not insulted them. He had confronted them on their sin of pride and they hated him for that. See, church family, many people reject Christ because he is too exclusive. Many people reject Christ because he's too exclusive. Jesus says he's the only way. There, there, it's not as if there is one mountain that is God and there's many paths that lead up. He says, no, there's one way. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. That's what Jesus says. So many people reject Christianity because it is too exclusive. But here, these people reject Jesus because he is too inclusive. He, he says anyone, anyone can come. He, he is including these Gentiles. And so if you're taking notes, this is so important. Sadly, many people believe those people, you know who those people are, don't you? Many people believe those people need salvation, but they don't deserve it. And we, you know who the we are, don't you? We deserve salvation, but we don't need it. 
we're good. Those people, oh, they, <laughs> yeah, th those who aren't like us, those who have a different skin color, those who vote differently than we do, those, who, th those people definitely need salvation, but they, they're not like us. They don't deserve it. If they were like us, they would deserve it, but we're already pretty good, so we don't need it. That's exactly what's happening in the synagogue that day. Okay, that's, that's me. I'm done with the text. What are we to do with this church family? We're not, we're not first century Jews in Palestine sitting in a synagogue listening to Christ. But just as he has confronted their spiritual pride, the day he confronts our spiritual pride. T today, every single one of us in this room is seeking to add something to the cross. You want to know who's in the most danger in this room of seeking to add something to the cross? The guy preaching on the stage. You know who's got the most spiritual? I, I got all kinds of lists I can give you that, that show how spiritual I am. Or, or what about morally and intellectually? Church family, I'm in danger of spiritual pride by virtue of having the job that I have. I'm in danger of, of moral and intellectual pride. I'm in danger. I mean, I'm a part of a pastor's group. <laughs> you know, God really needs us. I mean, if he doesn't have us, how's he gonna? That's in my life, church family, but what about yours? What are you seeking to add to the cross? The application of this message is just that simple. It's, it's turning to Christ and repenting of our spiritual pride and asking him to root that out of us, to get that out of here, that, that how silly is it of us that we even seek to try to add anything to the cross? And so today is a day of, of humility and repenting of spiritual pride. The application today could not be more clear. Repent of pride and walk in humility. Cry out to God today and admit that you are poor, blind, captive, and oppressed. Don't, don't you see what he has accomplished? Don't you see what he's accomplished on the cross? He has lived a perfect life, perfectly obeying the Father. He has taken onto himself our sins and put it to death on the cross and conquered that death in a victorious resurrection. And so pride says... I can add something to that with my outstanding spirituality. Pride says I can add to the work of the cross by my impeccable morality and my impeccable intellect. The group identity that I associate with really has something to add to the cross. That's what pride says. But church family, we all know in all reality, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And so he will forgive and accept and save and redeem anyone. That is, anyone and everyone who is willing to admit they need a savior. That is, those who will fully and finally admit that we are poor, that we are in need of his riches, that we are blind in need of him to give us sight, that we are captive in need of him to set us free. Those who will admit that we are oppressed and that he is the only one who can deliver gospel relief. Those he will save. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your salvific work on the cross. We thank you that we have nothing to add to it because if we had to add to it, we would fall terribly short. Oh God, let us in our hearts today see that we are the ones who are blind. We are the ones who are poor. We are the ones who are oppressed. We are the ones who are captive to our own sin. And lest you come set us free, we would stay there. Lord, forgive us today. Help us to search our own hearts for the places which we seek to add to the cross, where we believe that our own spirituality, our own morality has something to bear on our justification and our right standing before you. God, may this place be filled with repentant hearts. Send your Holy Spirit now to do that mighty work. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.